Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First application on the list for today is KGPG. That's the front end, the KDE front end, for GNU PG, which is the GNU, what is it, GNU Privacy Guard? Is that what that stands for? I don't know. GNU Pretty Good Privacy. It's a play on GP, no, on PGP, but it's it's sort of the, the opposite, it's GPG. So this is the, um, the, the pretty good privacy system of encryption, and KGPG is, as I say, the KDE front end for it. I have it launch as an auto start thing, or maybe it does that, maybe it's not even that I have it, maybe it's just a thing that it does. So I don't usually even notice when it opens, I just know that it, it does open. So I go to my uh, little uh, system tray up in the right corner of my desktop, and or I guess lower corner if you're running KDE as most people do with the panel at the bottom. I, I can't actually say definitively that most people do that, but the default setting for KDE is down at the bottom. I go there, click on KGPG, but you can also access it from just your K menu. And by, I want to say by default, but actually I don't know what happens by default. I don't believe I've ever used KGPG without a keyring already in existence. So I'm not sure what happens by default. I do know that uh, it opens up a list of all the keys in your keyring. And if you don't know about GPG, I presume we'll... I'm actually surprised we haven't already done an episode about it. Have I done an episode about GPG yet? Maybe not. GNU PG? I don't know. Anyway, um, the way that it organizes things in, in GPG is that you have a keyring. And a keyring is essentially a little database full of entries, and the entries are are other people's keys, uh, public keys, I should say, and your own private keys. That's in your key ring. And, and it is, it's, it's a database, so you can, you can query that database, you can import new keys into that database, you can export keys out of that database, and so on. You can manage different attributes of each key within the database, and there's a, a, a whole big scheme of options and flags and, and interactive uh, displays with, with GNU PG, or the, the GPG command. And, and it can be a little overwhelming. I mean, if, if I put my terminal full screen and then type in gpg-help, or I guess really what I want to do is gpg2-help, it, 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 actually that is actually surprisingly not as long as I thought it was. I thought it was a lot longer than that. I wonder if there's a, a major difference between gpg and gpg2. No, nope, not at all. Okay, wow, interesting. Um, anyway, it can be, it can be a little overwhelming. Um, because there are lots of different functions that you can do. I mean, like I'm saying, I, this is actually less. These are less. Th these are fewer options than I had than I than I recalled. But there are still a lot. I mean, GPG dash dash sign dash dash clear sign detach encrypt symmetric decrypt verify list keys list sigs 
check SIG's fingerprint, list secret keys, gen key, delete keys, delete secret keys, sign key. You know, all of the, I mean, these are all different functions that each of them kind of have a, a different, they, they, eat, they, they deal with different things. Like dash dash sign, that's, that's you using an existing key to sign an existing file to, to sort of put your imprint of, of your, your digital print, your, your digital identity onto an existing file. That's what dash dash sign does. Dash dash encrypt encrypts an existing file. Well, actually it could be a file that you enter onto right there, actually into the terminal, I think too. Um, but then there's, you know, right alongside of those options are dash dash list keys, which is you zooming out from sort of interacting with files and interacting with the database, querying the database. So the organization of the, of the options, at least in the dash dash help, I don't find to be to be, to be very helpful if if your goal is to learn how to use the application. You you've got sign encrypt symmetric decrypt list keys list sigs fingerprint gen key delete key sign key send key all of those just completely they're not even are they even alphabetized they're not even alphabetized they're just it's just listed apparently in no order so I don't understand that. I don't know why they, I don't know why that's the, that's the model. I think that this, this actually, I think arguably is a great argument for either, well, organizing your dash dash help better. That would be one thing that you could do. Categorize the kinds of options that are available to an application or the sort of that new style of command subcommand option. The kind of thing that you see with git where it's like git something, something. So git clone repository, git remote dash v, git remote add url, you know, like you've got git is the, the overall command and then you got some kind of like classification, uh, a mode that you enter. Yes, you're using git, but right now you're, you're, you're in the remote mode, you're in the clone mode, you're in the branch mode, and, and that kind of subdivides what options you have available to you based on what mode you're in. So if you if we had GPG keyring list, GPG keyring export key, GPG delete uh, keyring delete key and so on. That would make sense as as you, you would under, understand that you were in a keyring mode whereas maybe GPG file sign or GPG file encrypt, now it's making sense, right? Because now you know, well this is GPG but I'm in the file interaction mode. This is the this is the mode where I'm signing files or encrypting files or, or decrypting files or verifying no that's a verifying signature uh and so on uh gpg keyring list i already said that yeah that sort of thing so uh, gpg doesn't have that is my point and i do believe that that can be a little bit confusing kgpg has that based on conventions of a graphical application just it, it is a graphical application and therefore there are certain categor categories of actions that you can take. So for instance, when it first launches, we're essentially saying GPG keyring list because they're all there. You see all your signature or all your keys listed in in the interface and that's that they're there. Now, you probably know from typical, you know, from common graphical interface tradition 
that you could feasibly right-click on a signature, on a key, rather, sorry, and you could do a thing with it. So when you do that, indeed, a context menu pops up, and then you know, well, these are options related to an individual key. So for instance, I've just right-clicked on this on this on this key and I've got an option to export the public key. So that's how you export a public key from GPG. Cool. Now we know. Um, send email to that to that key owner. Sign and mail the user ID. Sign the key. Sign the user ID. Delete the key. View key properties and so on. So this is like hugely to my mind this is this is huge. I mean this is this is the kind of thing that GPG really, really needs. And I think it's a pity that the terminal application is is quite so obtuse. I think that's a, a real pity because it is it I mean it really is. It's a famously difficult application to use. And and it's it's awkward that it's that complicated because it's supposed to be a really important thing. Like GPG is supposed to be able to, in theory, easily boost your privacy online. When you email someone, you should be able to use GPG to directly verify each other's identity and send private messages to one another. And that's possible because of GPG. And yet the only person who ever emails me in an encrypted format is Ken Fallon from Hacker Public Radio because he uses it and i use it and so we're able to email back and forth is it essential no it's not essential but that that misses the point the the point is that it should be the default so kgpg if you, if you have not started using gpg for any reason and you think you want to start using it try kgpg for key management when you first launch it if if you don't have an existing gpg like a key ring already it it has a KGPG assistant. Click next, choose your backend. By default, it's user bin GPG2. Click next, create your configuration, which I mean that's that's what it'll offer to do for you. So the answer is yes. And then click next, uh, start KGPG automatically on KDE it is selected and generate a new key is selected then you click finish and then you're in the key generation setup and you can enter your, all your information so bogus bogus don't really use bogus bogus uh bogus at example.com don't really use that either a comment this is a fake key don't say that uh expiration i'm going to set it to never key size 4096 the algorithm doesn't let me choose the algorithm so i guess 4096 must sort of i don't know set it automatically or something and then click okay and then you're you're dropped into a, a thing that'll ask you for a password and i'll just do bogus one two three bogus one two three okay and then i don't know if it's gonna need me to do some generate some entropy or what so i'll click around move some windows around i don't know what it's, oh, it's still generating okay that's fine sometimes it asks uh, for you know for you to help generate sort of unpredictable events so that it can use that sort of for entropy but right now it doesn't seem to need that i don't know yeah okay it's done so there we go a new key has been created it's done it's easy you don't even have to learn any of the commands you just now you know uh, there's a revocation certificate that you can save just in case you need to, for some reason, destroy this key later. 
set that as your default key. Yes, I'll do that. Click OK, and now you've got it. You've got an empty key ring that, that took you maybe what, what, what's this been like? 20 seconds, one minute to, to create. Really fast, really easy, nothing to learn, except the next steps, and that's the, that's the trick. Is, is knowing what to do with a key once you have one. Well, the, the, the probably the next thing you're going to want to do with once you have a, a GNU GP, no, GNU PG, GNU PG key, uh, is to get someone else with a key that you can then correspond with. I mean, that would be the, 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 the advantage of having that, I guess. I mean, you can just sign your emails with your key, and, and then people at least who care will know that, you know, that file, the, the file that you've just sent them through electronic mail has been sent by you because it is, it has your digital signature attached on it. It has been signed by you. So you could do that, but, but you could also just encrypt the message so that they, so that only they can read the message. Now, in order to encrypt it, you must have their public key in your keychain. And the way that you get a public key is that you search a key server. Now, there's a little bit of a trick to that because, unfortunately, for whatever reason, I can't seem to get KGPG to turn up any result for a key server. I don't know why, but it just will not... In no no server that I search, and, and they're all preset for some reason. I, I can't... I cannot even imagine why. I don't know why that would be... Um, the case. I don't know why it would be preset. You would think that you would be able to enter a URL into it, an arbitrary URL, and have it search. But anyway, um, apparently that's not exactly working, but there are a bunch of key servers out there. Keyserver.ubuntu.com is one of them. Search something like, I don't know, Klaatu, search key, and there are a bunch of results for Klaatu. Are, are any of them me? I don't know. Uh, let's look for Klaatu at Hacker Public Radio. There we are, there's me. Uh, there's there's me, and then you can download that key and import it into your, your GNU, uh, into your KGPG application. I'll, I'll go over how that is done exactly uh, now. So if you, so a key server, by the way, is just, it's a, it's a mirror network. It, it, it doesn't matter what key server really, as long as this is like an authentic, legitimate key server, you know, like on a domain that you trust, in other words. Uh, it doesn't matter which one you, you, you go to, because they are, they're all just mirroring each other. So I've, I've uploaded my GPG key to one server, and, it, and then it just gets propagated across key servers. So keyserver.ubuntu.com is nice because it's kind of easy to remember. Keyserver. What's that one? Oh yeah, ubuntu.com. There you go. Um, so in order to download the, you're, you're just downloading the public key of the person that you want to email. You're not obviously, I guess, obviously downloading their private key. I mean, that's private, right? They have their private key. You wouldn't, you wouldn't find that on a key server. You will find their public key on a key server because that's the key that they want you to know. You need to know that in order to email them securely. Now, they won't be able to unlock the thing that you send them unless they have their own private key, but they should have that. So I'm just going to click on this pub link here up, up above my, above my, um, my key at the, the, the start of my, of the, my listing on this key server. I've, I found not Klaatu. This is the podcaster Klaatu from a bunch of old shows. Well, actually not a bunch. Well, yeah, a bunch. Two out of three are very old shows. Um, 
well, all three are old. One is still around. Okay, so anyway, I'm clicking on the pub link. DSA 1024 slash 45AE blah blah blah, ending in 5280F, uh, created in 2009. That opens up a plain text block of just, it looks like gibberish. It's just a big, it starts with dash 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 begin PGP public key block, and it goes all the way down to end public key block. I'm just going to copy that, or I could just right-click, I guess, and do a save. Where is it? No, I guess I can't. No, here, save page as downloads. This will be clat2-key.gpg. I guess uh, GPG. works for me. No, that, that would be... Let's do... Um, how about just clat2key? How about that? In downloads. Okay, there. Now I've got my key, and I can open it up in, in, um, in Emacs and look at it, or I can... Um, actually click on it and it'll be intercepted by Cleopatra, which is a different application. So I won't do that. But I can, in KGPG, import key. Oh, cool, you can import from the clipboard. So all I really had to do was click on, or yeah, click and then copy that text out of the browser. I didn't know that. Uh, go to f the file listing, if you've if you've done it the long way, as I have. Find Clatu key and then click OK, and that'll import my public key, and then you'll have a listing in your key in your key ring for Clatu, or actually not Clatu, uh, at Clatu at Hacker Public Radio. Now you can right click on that and see key properties. You can um, send an email to the owner of that key, which will email me at Clatu at Hacker Public Radio org. Um, you could edit the key, I guess, open the key URL, key properties. You can set the trust level of that key. Do you trust that this is actually my key? I mean, given that you've heard my voice tell you to download the key that starts with uh, whatever I said. Oh, actually, I just said the um, the, the encryption. So, uh, no, I said 45AE606 and then ends with 5280F. Given that you've heard my voice recommend that key, you could probably mark it as fairly trustworthy. In the in the realm of security, it is it is generally accepted that you don't ultimately trust a key uh, unless you have met the person, you've seen forms of ID from them to identify them as the person they are essentially claiming to be on their GPG key, and. It's important to retain, I think, that level of strictness because that's that's really, I mean, when you're building a, a web of trust, that's what you, you want certain standards to exist. Uh, it's up to you, of course, whether you, you ultimately trust that key or just mostly trust it or you don't trust it at all. Maybe I'm a, maybe this whole episode has been generated by a nefarious um, deep fake uh, to to put a fake key out there. Who knows? I certainly don't. I'm just a voice on a podcast. Okay, so that's KGPG. I hope that was a little bit helpful. If you, if you if you're not using GPG, um, consider consider giving it a go. And and KGPG will come into play later, much later in the K the K series here, because uh, KGPG can contain the key that. Uh, sort of encrypts your information within KDE through a system called KWallet. So if you if you use KDE and you get bugged by KWallet all the time, I will have the solution for stopping that eventually when we talk about KWallet. And and part of the solution is that you're going to be creating a new identity, a new KWallet, and that 
key is going to get saved into your KGPG keyring. So setting up a KGPG keyring is kind of a, a, a convenient, it's a, it's a nice convenience actually, because it does, it, it can underpin a couple of different uh, other technologies. KGPG, by the way, is, is integrated just beautifully into Kmail. So if you're using Kmail for email, you can just, you can encrypt stuff really, really easy. Encrypt, decrypt, super easy. It's just part of the interface. It just happens. And, and it's really, really nice. Okay. Next up is KGUI add-ons. This, the, the KGUI add-ons provides utilities for graphic user interfaces in the areas of colors, fonts, text, images, and keyboard input. These are not user-facing applications. Well, they're not applications at all. They're, they are, um, they're include files for KDE developers so that they can use little utilities to get color collections and color, um, color utilities and cursor, uh, you know, different, different cursors and icon utilities and, and other, other helper functions to help them sort of, uh, grab you know, common system information or not information, but preferences really from, from you, depending on, you know, what, what, what your favorite, um, what, what color palettes you have loaded or what, what font, uh, not what font, well, probably what font, there's some font utility in there. What cursor set you're using? Are you using the Adwata theme or the, the Breeze theme? Or is it Breeze normal or Breeze dark? And and so on. Uh, so that's KGUI add-ons. Not a whole lot to say about that, obviously. But then there is K Hangman. Hangman is a it's a word guessing game. I guess in a way it's a little bit like um Wordle back before Wordle was a theme maybe or a thing maybe. Um so you you play the thing and for each incorrect guess that you get um a little hangman or a, um what is it like a, a gallows is constructed and then for the next wrong thing that you get more of the gallows is constructed and you keep guessing letters until at some point you have uh constructed a a, a, a little a gallows and hung a person like hung them by their neck until they are dead that kind of hanging uh, so this is, it's just a word guessing game and there's not really anything to go off of other than just arbitrary guessing. I mean, the best you can do, I guess, is just start with the most frequent letters and then brute force your way, ideally, to some, to, to success. Um, there, there's no, there's no hint, you know, it doesn't give you a category, it doesn't tell you you're guessing an animal, you're guessing a video game, a movie, a song, uh, a verb, a noun. It just doesn't tell you any of those things. So you just have to, it's just straight brute force. But I mean, that's no fault of the application developer. I mean, this is this is the game. This is K Hangman. This is how it is played. So um, the faults of the game, I won't, I won't, um, certainly won't hold against the the developer it is it is an accurate duplication or or um replication or whatever uh, iteration whatever of of this of this rather elementary game so oh wait i think i got one shark there we go i finally i, I beat one um and as with other kde games there are different um themes that you could use i i i don't 
love any of the themes aside from notes. Notes looks exactly right to me. I mean, the other ones are fine. I'm sure they're they're fine, but I'm I'm just saying notes. It's it's like a notepad and my only memory of of Hangman is really as a kid where you're just, you know, super bored at at school and the only thing you can think to do is play Hangman with a friend and and so this this kind of sketch the sketchy sort of um, drawing of a of a noose or of a, of a gallows and of the person that's going to be hung um, is just that to me that that is the most accurate portrayal of of this game. So that's that's kind of spot on, I think. And that's it. I think that's that's everything. Uh, there is a manual. It looks like there's uh, about KDE. It's weird for some reason the menus are all buttons with icons and I don't feel like that's a setting a toolbar setting I feel like that's just a thing that that this application has 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 done well anyway that's that's K hangman uh should we get with coffee yeah let's go get coffee we'll come back we'll talk about K help center K holidays uh K hotkeys K HTML and who knows where else we'll go for now we'll go for coffee <laughs> Okay, we're back. We got coffee. Let's continue down this long, long list of KDE applications. We just finished off with uh, K Hangman, and so the next one up is K Help Center. Sort of self-explanatory that one, but you can launch K Help Center as an application by typing in either Help or K Help Center, and that'll bring up a a little viewer, a help viewer, and the, I guess the top level of the KDE help center, which, which is a, or I should say the top level of the KDE user manual. And along the left, in the left column, you'll see the content listing. Uh, or if you tab over to, uh, still in the left column, to the glossary, you'll find terms you can browse or search through. And uh, over in contents, of course, you can find a couple of different uh, categories. So you've got uh, application manuals, and that contains links to applications that you have installed that it has help files for. So it has, uh, you know, a manual for Aggregator and KGET and KMail and Conqueror and Conversation and Copete and KRFB and so on, uh, as well as, yeah, I mean, lots, lots of stuff. But then it's also got like in uh, system setting modules, it's got little help pages for system setting modules, it's got K-Info Center modules, it's got K-IO Slaves, it's got Unix man, man pages, and even more, probably. Yeah, here's info pages, yeah. So there's there's quite a lot that you can browse through with K-Help Center if you enjoy reading documentation. I mean, that's what K-Help Center is. That is that is what it is. It is a, a, a central place for all of the documentation. I feel like it's one of those applications I should use more than I do. And it's weird that I don't, but yeah, it, it is one of those things that I kind of forget about until I don't. And then suddenly it's very, very useful. K 
holidays. This is a component of the PIM suite, the KDE PIM suite, personal information manager management suite, and it makes sure that your calendars can uh, figure out the regional holidays that you might want to uh, indicate on your on your calendar. Apparently, the iCalendar format doesn't do holidays um, consistently or doesn't do all of the holidays or something like that. There's some kind of limitation, apparently, uh, according to the documentation of, of K-Holidays. Where you configure this is K-Contact. Contact is what I meant to say, contact. You go to Configure uh, Contact, and then in the side column, there's a calendar entry. And in calendar, you can set the general uh, usage of your calendar, the time and date, and there in time and date is the holiday selection menu. And there are a bunch of options. I mean, I'm talking by country. There are several different kinds of holidays. And, you know, very often there will be more than one for a specific country, depending on uh, where in that country you are, what language within that country you speak, and so on. So lots of ways to observe the holidays. Uh, you can also set there, actually, your sort of start time for the your work day, which, you know, this is all reflect, re reflected in your, in your calendar. So for instance, I actually work currently a Tuesday through Saturday work week. So I have my calendars sort of indicate that Sunday and Monday are my weekends, my, my days generally start at 4.30 a.m., and that's just kind of how, how I do that. Um, my, my starting time for work is, is generally 5 o'clock, and it ends at around, you know, never. Uh, and, and so I've got that configured. None of that has anything to do with a holiday, but I find that a lot more interesting than holidays, to be honest. I mean, I love a good holiday. I love a day off, but... In terms of what that holiday is supposed to be, quote unquote, observing, I very rarely actually care. I mean, it's it's interesting for a, from a cultural perspective, but not not from an emotional one. So, um, I don't I don't have holiday K holidays sort of active. It it is there. It exists. If you want that information, you can see it in your uh, contact calendar by activating or, or or by by taking advantage of K holidays. Well, yeah, I guess activating, because you have to activate a holiday set in order to, to see it. K-Hotkeys. This is a system settings module, so you and I, dear listener, we know what that means. It means it's a KCM, a KDE configuration module. Yes, okay, got that right. Um, and so, yeah, K-Hotkeys is the thing. It's the the library and the the component, the, the module that controls where you set up your um, keyboard shortcuts, which is kind of related to the K global Excel um, thing that we were talking about. So that's uh, in, where would this be? Hotkeys? That's not what they call it though, right? Yeah, call it shortcuts. So if you go to shortcuts or custom short, well, so shortcuts is the is the selection in system settings that you would, you would, you'd, you'd come across. I mean, and if you do do a search for hotkey, it does come up with shortcuts. So within the shortcuts panel, there are two selections. You can go to uh, shortcuts, shortcuts, uh, or custom shortcuts. So shortcuts are the ones that are um, already assigned. Like the, these, in one column, it shows the applications and the system services and the different actions that have existing shortcuts already assigned to them. So emoji selector, for instance, 
uh, K-Alarm, K-Runner, Spectacle, System Settings, and so on. The and, and and if you click on one, it shows you in the right panel uh, w what those shortcuts are, and you can edit them there and so on. But the custom shortcuts is where I usually go, and this is a place where you can just invent your own. And the template, uh, shall we say, is pretty simple to 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 do. You you just you go to the edit menu at the bottom of the panel, and you select new. And in new, there are a couple of different options. There's a global shortcut, a window action, or a mouse gesture. Now, I don't use mouse, m mouse gestures. I keep meaning to try it. I just never really have gotten around to it. Um, but there are, the one that I use generally is a global shortcut, and you can define it as a command or URL, a dbus command, or a, oh, I just rolled off of that selection, so I have no idea what the other one is. Send keyboard input. Okay. So I usually just do command URL and I give it a name. So for instance, maybe this will be URXVT. And then as the uh, as the trigger, I'm going to do, let's say, super X. And then as the action, I'm going to say, uh, we'll do user bin URXVT. So that just launches URXVT every time I hit super x of course i have to apply that now if i hit super x there it is urxvt instantly because it's such a small little terminal but that's that's the, the the most basic i mean that's just okay i press the key and 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 issue a command which i mean that that alone is powerful that you can just have the, the press of a key globally issue some an arbitrary command of your choosing that's very very cool but there there is a lot more i mean you can call an action on a specific window by 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 naming the window sort of type so you can for instance um one of their examples is to proceed to the next song in xmms so they do this by defining a shortcut of control alt b and the action that they that they have set for this is a window action and the window and this of course when they go to edit new uh, window action you go you can define a specific window the active window or the action window so they have specific window and it's the xmms window the way to the, the way they define that is by using window class contains xmms underscore player there are a couple of different ways to find out sort of what what your desktop sees a window as and honestly, the e easiest way in KDE is to open the application that you want to affect, right-click on the title bar, go to More Actions, and then go down to Set... Nope, sorry. Go down to uh, Configure Special Window Settings. That opens up a uh, KCM module for setting specific window settings. And uh, it, it gives you kind of a rundown of what you're looking at. The description is Window Settings for Elisa. The in this case because I opened Elisa, um, window class application exact match Elisa E L I S A. So that's that's written right there. So now I know if I want to do some keyboard shortcut to affect Elisa, whether it's an act the 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 uh, front out you know the active window or not, 
I know that that KDE can find that window by by using the window class E L I S A match whole window class no uh, window types normal window window title exact match E L I S A with a capital E that time because that's literally what the window is called and you just use that information in the in when you're defining your custom action and suddenly you can zero in on the the exact window you want to affect with an arbitrary keyboard command it's so cool i mean it's so powerful this is the kind of thing that that makes kde in, in or or linux in general because this isn't specific i mean it is it is specific to kde but you could do this sort of thing in fluxbox as well at the very least I'm sure there are lots of other desktop environments that give you the same amount of flexibility. Um, so, but this is the kind of thing that just makes it such a pleasure, I think, to to use, because this is the the everyday kind of modification of your environment, and it, and it's just so easy, and and you can make those modifications without training or without study. It's just it's just there for you, and it doesn't even have to be a substantial change. It can be the the tiniest, stupidest change ever. If it saves you just a little bit of a headache or just a little bit of time, then it's worth it. And I think that's what computers ought to be. Like, huge changes should be trivial to make, and trivial changes should have huge effects. You should you should be able to make the the silliest little revision to your environment if that's what you feel like. There doesn't need to be a good reason for it. There doesn't need to be a use case or a user story or a any a justification at all. If you want something different, then you should be able to make it different quickly and easily and without complaint from your operating environment. So I, I really, really think this is the kind of thing that that is probably the most significant thing in 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 the free desktop like that that kind of flexibility is hugely important for for many people not for everybody as i've said before gnome is is not flexible at all i mean it's flexible i guess if you want to reprogram stuff and learn how to do gnome extensions and and so on but i mean i've seen some really complex ways of just I don't know, putting icons on a desktop, and even then they can't seem to keep them on one screen half the time. They keep jumping around if you attach a separate screen. I mean, it's 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 a complex thing. But in KDE, at least, everything's there, it seems, it feels to me. Everything's there. It's just whether you activate it or, or change it. But it, it is there for you if you need it. And that's such a that's a, such a I think that that might be the thing that truly keeps me on KDE more than anything else. I mean, I I know you can do that a lot with like Fluxbox, for instance, but with KDE, I just feel like everything is already there. You don't have to add stuff to it. It's it's there, and then you just kind of whittle out the stuff that you don't want. And and there's a certain kind of ease to that process that I think is, um, well, it's the very definition of empowering. It's a really, that that's a really nice thing. All right, let's talk about KHTML, a web rendering engine based on the KParts technology and using KJS for JavaScript support. I cannot, I mean, I've, I've talked about this before, and so I'm not going to go on too much about it now, but I cannot overstate the significance of KHTML. It is bigger than huge it is it is enormous it is gargantuan it is it is hugely significant to 
everything on the computer practically these days. KHTML, in case you didn't know, was developed by the KDE community, or specifically the KHTML developers, as the rendering engine for Conqueror. And what does it mean to be a rendering engine? Well, I don't know. I, I've never written a web browser, but you need some program to take the HTML and the JavaScript and the PHP and all the different things, I mean, mostly HTML and CSS, you, but you need something to take that stuff and turn it into the pretty things that people expect to see in their web browser. Because that's that's what K, that's what HTML is supposed to be, right? It's a markup language that, once you put it through a processor of some sort, comes out the other side with a, a nice font applied to it, with a certain kind of spacing applied to it, and, and uh, some graphics where the image tag was used, and blue underlined text, or maybe gray, not underlined text, or whatever, uh, for, for your hot links, for your hyperlinks, and so on. And that doesn't just happen. I mean, you need something to translate the HTML and the CSS into the, 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 the visuals. So that's the rendering engine. And that seems almost like an easy task until you really start to try to parse HTML, and then uh, integrate CSS into that, and, and and let the CSS define how the HTML gets rendered, and, and stuff like that. So KHTML was the engine that, and continues to be to this day, uh, the engine that, that made all of that happen in Conqueror, in the Conqueror web browser. I don't know how it happened, but Apple computers, at one point, heard about KHTML and decided that it seemed like a great starting point for a, a web, uh, an HTML rendering engine of their own. So they forked KHTML, it's open source, so you can do that. They forked KHTML, turned it into something called WebKit, and they used it in their Safari browser. Someone called them at one point, I don't know if it was a literal phone call, an email, you know, whatever. Someone, somewhere, some people, some places, said, hey, you've forked an open source project, so we need to see the code back, because this is this is GPL, you have to share your changes back with the community. Apple complied to the letter of the law, and they just did a big code dump of WebKit and said, there, there's our changes. They didn't in any way differentiate what they'd done. They didn't provide diffs. They didn't provide any, they just did a code dump. So it was like, here, try to figure out what's different. Bye. That was it. Uh, the community was not super happy about this. This was not a great public relations moment for Apple computers. Uh, and it kind of set the tone, I think, for how Apple tends to interact with open source projects. And I've kind of talked about this before on, on this show. I mean, there was the uh, stuff about K... Um, no, Curl, rather. Curl, and how Curl had been used, you know, on, on Apple computers since who knows when, and Apple has had, has never contacted the, the developer, the maintainer of Curl, doesn't talk to the maintainer. When the maintainer tries to fix bugs or point out bugs to Apple, they seem to ignore the maintainer. This was all written up in his in, in the maintainer's blog. You can go read it. It's, it's in the links in the show notes. So Apple isn't necessarily a great 
citizen of the open source community by any means, which is a pity because they do a lot to claim participation. They do highlight their, their open source components as if to say, look, we participate in this sort of open source community. And strictly speaking, again, to the letter of the law, they do. They have code on the internet that is licensed as open source, and therefore they are members of the open source community. You can't really technically argue with that. Whether they're the kind of member of an open source community that you would want to necessarily sort of like hang out with on the weekends? Probably not. So it's a real pity that this is kind of their attitude towards open source, and it's definitely one of those areas where there's some room for improvement. And I'm not really comparing them to anyone else. I'm not saying Apple compared to Microsoft or Apple compared to Oracle or Apple compared to anything. It's just Apple, as they are and as they have been, are, are not very... Um, they're not very cooperative in the open source space. And, and, you know, it's one of those things, I mean, Microsoft has been actually antagonistic to open source, and now they've kind of changed some things and are apparently, in many ways, rather collaborative. Now, there are lots of problems. I mean, GitHub still isn't an open stack. Windows, you know, 7 never got open source sourced what windows no not nothing about windows is open source you know i mean so well i'm sure there's something i mean wsl might be open source i don't know powershell is open source but you know what i mean um so there's there are problems but it's just you know so apple could change their tune they could change the way that they interface with open source but it's going to take a lot i think and i i mean i hope i hope it would take a lot and and i hope that that that's something that they'll eventually do i mean who wouldn't right i mean why yeah that would be great if they would start becoming more collaborative more cooperative that would be really cool i mean it would be really really cool if they would just go open source entirely but uh, since i'm just wishing and dreaming here but anyway khtml hugely important it's a big big deal and it's a real pity i think uh you know to to some degree i i think that i guess i guess the i'll, I'll you know, like, the feeling is that Apple kind of came in and, I guess, stole their thunder would be the correct phrase. In other words, they took the code, they did some stuff with it, they technically shared it back, and then the, but they rebranded it. And they went out there and started really, you know, really, really um, promoting it kind of as if, though, it was Apple's thing. I mean, most people off the street, first of all, don't know what HTML is, don't know what an HTML rendering engine is, d d doesn't understand, you know, any of that stuff. But I mean, most of the people, if you if you said, isn't it great that Apple has uh, their own browser called Safari, people aren't going to say, yeah, well, you know, it's because they forked that open source project. You know, that's just not how people are going to think about it. And even a lot of developers don't necessarily know sort of that, that KHTML was something that the Linux community had and used for a very long time before Apple decided to fork it. So, so it's not as if though Apple is giving any credit where credit is due. Uh, and, and they are in fact sort of, you know, it's not just that they're not giving credit where credit is due. It's, it's that they are taking credit for stuff that they didn't really do. Like the bulk of KHTML existed, well, or rather the bulk of WebKit existed in the form of KHTML before Apple created WebKit. So, it's a real pity that they did that. Um, and then, of course, I, I should I should I should say WebKit didn't stop with Apple. WebKit has continued and got rolled into Chrome. As I don't know, is it still called WebKit there, or is it called something else? I don't. I can't keep it straight. 
point is, it's um, it, it's it's the driving engine of, of Chrome, and Chrome, of course, is the driving engine of uh, Electron apps and and a bunch of other stuff. So I mean, it's it's huge. I can't can't even estimate how huge it is. It's just so huge, and it all came from KHTML. Now, if you open up Conqueror, you can go to the general settings, go, configure Conqueror. Uh, general, um, and there's a setting, default web browsing engine, khtml, or web engine. So you can choose between those two in case you want to uh, experience one or the other, and and maybe it's probably worth experiencing both of them, to be honest, uh, and kind of see kind of see what they do. Now, I will admit, I've not had great luck with khtml, like, you know, ironically, after all of this. Like KHTML, I don't know. I, I I don't know whether it is considered more of a research pro project at this point, where it's kind of like, well, we're going to adhere very strictly to these specifications, no matter what the web is actually doing, or or whether it's just lagging behind the modern web. I mean, the modern web, make no mistake, is an ugly thing. It is not. It is. It is in no means. You know, it is. It is bloated. It is messy. It is. It is noisy bothersome it, it is not fun so i'm not saying that there's that, that I'm, I'm not saying khtml is lacking i'm just saying it may not be keeping up with the modern web which you know again it's not necessarily a like a bad thing it's just it is just a reality um but it is definitely worth you know looking at khtml uh and then compare it to the web engine uh version of, of conqueror and um Try it out for a week, or try it out for a day, and, and see what ha what works, what doesn't work. Um, yeah, it it is it is kind of interesting, and you know, I mean, it's it's funny how how quickly we kind of get into certain systems because right now I'm I mean I have been for a very long time uh, a Firefox user, but within Firefox, you know, I've got I've got um, I've got the uh, password store plugin, so I I have a GPG managed password st store on my computer. And I've got a little server running internally that broadcasts uh, passwords out to Firefox when Firefox needs them, and they, it autofills the form. And I'll do an episode on it sometime. It's it's quite a handy tool, but um, you know that uh, there's no plugin for that for Conqueror, so it's it's kind of awkward not to have that if I try Conqueror. Um, there's container tabs in Firefox now, so I can have like containers for work and containers for 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 um just normal everyday life and and all that other stuff and it's just interesting how you you really do develop certain things that you kind of grow to rely upon and you know it's it's always for me it's it's almost in a weird way it's harder sometimes to switch from one thing to another if it's open source because both ones are winners right they're both open source i don't care which one i'm using personally but whether you're using conqueror and khtml or or conqueror and web engine or Firefox or Chromium, it doesn't really doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, I think that the the important significant thing here is that KHTML changed the way modern computers function. I mean, not it it didn't shift anything. It just they it just it has changed what they look like. Without KHTML, I think you could argue that there would be no Chrome, and that's a big deal. I mean, whether you want Chrome or not, uh, the fact that Chrome exists and Chromium and Chrome OS—I mean, huge, huge, huge—started with KHTML. That's a big innovation, and it, it it like I say, it's kind of painful. I think deep down, 
that it it was borrowed technology without any of the praise. And yes, they, they the letter of the law was followed, and that's great, but I, I think it could have been done a little bit more politely, If certainly if you want to win friends at all. Like, I, I think a little bit more going into sort of consideration that w- would be nice. And I mean, that's, you know, that's why I don't feel any need to protect corporate interests over anything, right? Like, there, there, are, there do seem to be developers who, who, who are very concerned about corporate ability to use code, and they think the GPL is kind of dangerous because it, it constrains develop, uh, corporate interests so much. You think, you know what, really, honestly, corporate interests are fine. They, they do not need protection. They're, they're getting around all the letters of the law that are inconvenient for them just fine. I think everything's okay. Um, the GPL really is an important license, and uh, even with the GPL, KHTML has been, I mean, it, it has benefited, but, but it just, it, it still, still doesn't come across as sort of a pleasant interaction, and that's too bad, but very telling. Okay, last one is going to be KI18N. I would love to know where that came from. It's been something that I've, like, I18N has been something I've I've seen so often since switching to Linux that it just seems kind of normal to me, but I have no idea what what it refers to. And it, it kind of, it's one of those things that I never really even thought, like, I forget that I have no idea about what that refers to. Like, what what is that? I don't know. Is it like, because there are 18 languages when that was developed or something? Or, you know, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I know there are more than 18 languages. I'm just meaning maybe there were 18 when the person developed K, uh, I18N or something. There were like 18 supported ones or something. I don't know. So anyway, KI18N provides functionality for internationalization uh, for, for user interfaces. So this is the uh, translation framework and specific, this is specific to KDE. So this is the K, K fr- KDE framework 5 version of this. And it, it is, it's just the assurance that when you switch a language in your interface, that all the widgets that can be translated are indeed translated. And that there's a way for developers to keep track of those. That you can have an internationalization file and keep your, your translated strings in them. And for those translated strings to be used on a system that is set to a different language. We've talked a little bit about that before. You can look in the, the show notes for the translation uh, topics, because uh, I've definitely talked about some of the tools for, for internationalization. I think the A-T-N-I-N is hugely important, obviously. I mean, regional differences abound. The, the more you can give people in their own language, the better. I, I don't know, you know, it's not, it's not a feature I don't think that, that is so, well, that's unique, you know? I mean, like, I mean, it might be unique, I don't know. I mean, to some people, it's hugely unique. Let's put it that way. To some people for whom Windows is not translated into their language, it's huge that a lot of open source may be or can be easily so that they can they themselves could translate it and then submit the changes back and then see those changes reflected in the, ne- in the next release. That can be a huge thing. So to some people, yeah, it is huge. I- I, I guess I mean, like, in terms of, like, if you're going to quote-unquote sell Linux to someone, I don't know that translation support is really that big of a deal. I, I I don't know. But I have a feeling that a lot of systems are probably translated, like Windows and Mac. I, I would I would assume they have a lot of different language support. 
I don't know how much like the applications have support for different languages. I don't. I I haven't used non-open source software in ages, so I, I don't. I just have no no compass for that at all. I have no idea. No no barometer for that sort of thing. So um, I feel like I don't know. I feel like people are are oddly acquiescent in computing. That's what I've, I think I've come to learn. And if you hand someone something that's written in English and that's their only option, but they think that that's what everyone in the industry is using or, or whatever, then they'll use it. That's, that's my, that's been my experience. Like people will just, they'll just settle for what, what they think everyone else is doing. I don't know why. It's a weird phenomenon. I think it's great that Linux has the support, the internationalization support. It's obviously super important. It's super important to have that structure for developers. It's it's important to have the option for users. I, I, I wish it was more of a selling point than it is, but it's not all about selling Linux to people. It's, it's also just about doing the right thing for a really great operating system. And that's what I... 18 in provides and ki18 in make sure that it's well integrated into the kde environment i think that's all i have time for today thank you very much for listening i'll talk to you next time Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open